Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome to another episode of SCOTUS 101. GC, it's been another busy week at the court. Are you ready to go? Absolutely. Let's do it. Well, we're starting off with a bit of good news this week. Uh, For the first time in over a year, all nine justices met in person at the Supreme Court on Friday, April 23rd. Uh, It's also the first time all nine justices have met together at the court since Justice Barrett joined them. GC, do you know what that means? Tell me. Well, it means that we have a new official photograph of all, yeah, I know, uh, picture time uh, with all (laughs) nine current justices. Uh, You know, this has been delayed because of the coronavirus, so it's nice to have their uh, their new official portrait. Wonderful. You know, uh, this might shock you, but I haven't actually seen it yet. Yeah, well, just Google it, uh, and now Justice Barrett has her own, you know, picture on the Supreme Court's website. So it's good to Wonderful. see she's uh, officially official <laughs> now. Uh, there were several orders this week. Uh, first up was a procurium opinion. That means no identified author uh, that was issued without argument. It was in the case of Alaska v. Wright. In this case, the petitioner, Sean Wright, had been convicted in 2009 in Alaska State Court of sexual abuse of a minor. After he finished serving his sentence, he moved to Tennessee, but he failed to register as a sex offender under federal law. He ultimately pled guilty uh, to violating that federal law. While the federal proceeding was going on, Wright filed a habeas corpus petition in the U.S. District Court in Alaska, claiming that the Alaska Supreme Court had unreasonably applied clearly established federal law when it rejected his Sixth Amendment claims and affirmed his state conviction. The district court in Alaska denied his motion on the ground that Wright was not, quote, in custody, pursuant to the judgment of a state court, and that he should have filed his motion in federal court in Tennessee. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals reversed, holding that Wright's state conviction was a necessary predicate to his federal conviction so that Wright was, in fact, in custody pursuant to the judgment of a state court. But the U.S. Supreme Court disagreed, holding that the Ninth Circuit clearly misapplied the court's opinion in Malong v. Cook from 1989, in which the court held that a habeas petitioner does not remain in custody under a conviction after the sentence imposed for it has fully expired, merely because of the possibility that the prior conviction will be used to enhance the sentences imposed for any subsequent crimes of which he is convicted. The Supreme Court added that when the second sentence is imposed is pursuant to the second conviction that the petitioner is incarcerated and is therefore in custody. The court expressed no view on the underlying merits of Wright's habeas corpus petition. Interesting. How about grants this week, Zach? Yeah, there were a couple. Uh, the court granted cert in three new cases. Uh, first up uh, was the case of Houston Community College System versus Wilson. And the question there is whether the First Amendment restricts the authority of an elected body to issue a censure resolution in response to a member's speech. We also got one in United States versus Zubeda which will consider the scope of the state secret privilege. It's a privilege that lets the government block the release of information in litigation that concerns national security. 
And finally, uh, at long last, we have a cert grant in a Second Amendment case. The court granted cert in New York State Rifle and Pistol v. Corlett, but in an interesting twist, it rewrote the question presented and limited it to the question of whether the state's denial of petitioners' applications for concealed carry licenses for self-defense violated the Second Amendment. Uh, there's been a lot of speculation about you know what kind of tea leaves we can read from the court rewriting the question. Uh, so it'll be certainly be interesting to watch this case moving forward. Well, whatever happens, chalk this up as a uh, correct prediction to Amy, who said that this court probably would take this one, and she was right. That brings us to oral arguments, and we had a bunch this week, starting with Americans First Prosperity versus Bonta and the Thomas More Law Center versus Bonta. These two cases involve a challenge to a California policy first put into place by then Attorney General Kamala Harris that requires charities and nonprofits to turn over the names of their donors to the government. The policy is ostensibly meant to prevent fraud in nonprofit finances. But the petitioners, two conservative advocacy groups, argue that it chills their members' First Amendment rights because partisan government employees or hackers could leak their information to the press and subject them to harassment. At oral argument, it seemed that the justices favored the petitioners, but whether they will strike down the law completely or just say that it cannot be enforced as to these petitioners is not clear. The right at issue here has been referred to as the freedom of association, but you might notice association is not mentioned in the First Amendment. This right has only been amorphously defined in previous cases as flowing from the nexus of the right of free speech, the right to petition the government, and the right of assembly. It turns out, though, that which provision of the First Amendment you anchor association to really matters. For instance, if the right of association derives only from the right of speech, a court might rule that because speech is a public occurrence, you don't have a very strong interest in privacy. Enter the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty with probably the most interesting amicus brief in this case. And there were tons of amicus briefs in this case. There really the were. Beckett, yeah. And rightfully so. <laughs> right. And a huge left-right coalition. I mean, you had one of the most diverse coalitions of left-right on the side of uh, petitioners here that I, that I can remember. But anyway, the Beckett Fund argued that the framers saw association as part of the right of assembly. Now, that is because associations don't actually exist primarily to speak. They exist primarily to cultivate and instill beliefs, ideas, values, and traditions in their members that may eventually become speech. In other words, the right of association is formative, not expressive, and that's why privacy is important. Really a neat historical and originalist argument. And if you're interested in it, several of the authors of that brief have written a shorter, less legalese summary of it at the website Law and Liberty. Next up, we have the case of Guam versus United States. This case concerns the Superfund statute, and the court will decide whether the territory of Guam is time-barred from suing the Navy under that statute for the cost of cleaning up a former munitions dump uh, that was used for several decades after World War II. The Superfund statute would allow Guam to sue the Navy for the cost of cleaning up the site, except that since 1950, Guam has been in charge of that site and in that position entered into a settlement agreement with the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, in 2004, which, according to the government and the court below, 
triggered a three-year statute of limitations on Superfund claims, which expired before Guam brought this case. The case hinges on whether the Superfund statute's limitation period applies to all settlements, such as the Clean Water Act settlement that Guam and the EPA entered into, or only to Superfund settlements. It was entirely unclear after oral arguments who would win. The justices generally seem to be balancing the broad language of the statute against the concerns of fairness to Guam and the policy concern that a decision against Guam might interfere with other state and territories' efforts to clean up their own Superfund sites. Next up, we had Holly Frontier Cheyenne Refining versus Renewable Fuels Association. Now, every now and then, the Supreme Court has to decide a case by defining a single word. In this case, the word is extension. The case concerns part of the Clean Air Act that requires fuel refineries to include a percentage of renewable fuels in their products. The law includes a temporary exemption for small refineries that would suffer hardship from the requirement. Two provisions further modify that exemption. Section A says that the exemption can be extended for at least two years if the Department of Energy finds disproportionate economic hardship. And Section B says that a small refinery may petition for a Section A extension at any time. So the question is, can a small refinery get an extension if the period of its temporary exemption has already expired? Or does extension require that the temporary exemption still be in effect? Next up, we have United States v. Palomar, Santiago. If a non-citizen is deported and later returns to the country, he or she can be prosecuted for illegal reentry. Naturally, the government has to prove the existence of a prior deportation order. The question here is, what happens if that deportation order exists but is legally invalid? Can the defendant use that fact in his or her defense? In this case, Palomar Santiago was deported for getting a DUI. He did not challenge the deportation order. But later, the Supreme Court held in Leocol v. Ashcroft that this sort of DUI was not, in fact, a removable offense. Palomar Santiago returned to the country, and prosecutors used the old, now unlawful, deportation order to charge him with unlawful entry. The problem for him, however, is that the immigration laws require more than just a showing that the order was unlawful. He must also show that in the original proceedings, he exhausted his administrative remedies and was denied judicial review. He did not do that here, so the government argues it can go ahead with the prosecution, but Palomar Santiago argues that is fundamentally unfair and that his prior deportation order should be treated as void ab initio from the very beginning. The court seemed pretty split at oral arguments. Chief Justice Roberts said that there were lots of areas in the law where if you don't follow procedure, the door closes. Justice Kagan said that it seemed unfair to have required Palomar Santiago to appeal the original ruling when, at that time, his DUI clearly counted as a deportable offense and he was almost sure to lose. But Justice Thomas really got to the heart of the matter by asking the government why it was even bothering with this prosecution. The government responded that it had an interest in stopping people from, quote, taking the law into their own hands by reentering the U.S. when there was a removal order that that person had never challenged. Next up, we had Mahoney Area School District versus BL. This was a big ticket case, wasn't it, GC? 
Yes, it was. And in some ways, the facts surrounding this case are like if the First Amendment met mean girls. <laughs> A high school cheerleader was upset about not having made the varsity cheerleading team. One Saturday morning, after she finds out, she sends two expletive-filled messages to about 250 friends on Snapchat about the cheerleading program and includes a picture of her and some friends making an obscene gesture. Now, some of the cheerleaders' Snapchat friends also attend the school and participate in the cheerleading program, and they forwarded her message to the coach. Now, the cheerleading coach determined that the cheerleader had violated team rules and she removed her from the team for the rest of the year. The school board upheld that decision. So the cheerleader and her parents responded by filing a federal lawsuit alleging that her First Amendment rights had been violated. The lower courts sided with the student. Essentially, the Supreme Court is being asked to decide whether its prior opinion in 1969 in a case called Tinker applies to student speech off campus. In Tinker, which involves students wearing armbands to protest the Vietnam War, the court held that public school officials may regulate speech that would materially and substantially disrupt the work and discipline of the school. Now, the extraordinarily talented Lisa Blatt represented the school district and argued that Tinker should apply off-campus because off-campus speech can also cause disruption, particularly when it comes to social media. She said, and I quote, "...time and geography are meaningless." The U.S. government also weighed in supporting the school district's position. Still, a majority of the justices seemed skeptical. Next up, we have Penny's Pipeline Company versus New Jersey. This case raises two issues. First, whether the Natural Gas Act delegates to the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission certificate holders the authority to exercise the federal government's eminent domain power to condemn land in which a state claims an interest, and second, whether the Third Circuit properly exercised jurisdiction over this case. If you're not already asleep, hold on, don't doze off yet. <laughs> Basically, what happened here was that Pennies applied for and received a permit from the FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, to build a natural gas pipeline to serve the northeastern part of the country, and parts of the pipeline would run through the state of New Jersey. Once it received its permit, Pennies proceeded to initiate eminent domain proceedings in federal court against various lands in which the state of New Jersey had an interest. New Jersey objected to these suits on 11th Amendment grounds, which the district court rejected because it said as a federal certificate holder, Pennies stood in the shoes of the federal government and was exercising the federal government's eminent domain power. The Third Circuit disagreed, though, and vacated the district court's orders. So Pennies sought cert. Interestingly, both Pennies and New Jersey believed that the Third Circuit had authority to hear the case, but the United States has weighed in and disagrees. It said that the Third Circuit did not have the authority to hear the case because of some unique jurisdictional requirements of the Natural Gas Act. As expected, the oral argument revolved around very technical issues, but this case involves interesting issues surrounding whether and to what extent the federal government's eminent domain power is delegable. That brings us to our one opinion of the week in a case called Niz Chavez versus Garland. Now, here is another case where the court has to define a single word, and that word is A. Petitioner here is a non-resident alien who was subject to deportation. 
Now, aliens in that position can qualify for a discretionary relief from deportation if they can show continuous presence in the country for 10 years or more. But there is a law that says that period of residency ends when the alien receives a notice of a removal action, which includes both the charges and the time and place of the proceeding. So here, the petitioner received two documents two months apart, one with the charges and later another with the time and place of the hearing. So he argued that he did not receive a single notice, so his period of continuous residency didn't end. The government said, no, you received complete notice when you got the second, so your period of residency ends then. In a 6-3 opinion by Justice Gorsuch, with Justices Thomas, Breyer, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Barrett joining, the court said A means one. Justice Kavanaugh, joined by Roberts and Alito, dissented because, in his view, the ordinary meaning, as opposed to Justice Gorsuch's literal meaning, of A is not necessarily one. For example, A job application or A manuscript may be delivered in installments. That was the analogy that Kavanaugh used. If this debate sounds familiar, it's the same literal meaning versus ordinary meaning debate that Gorsuch and Kavanaugh had in the Bostock case. But in this case, it does a better job of highlighting it because Gorsuch hasn't made a logical error of comparing unlike things as he did in Bostock. So who wins this debate this time? It's a hard case because in fairness, it's not really clear what Congress meant. But I think Justice Kavanaugh wins because a notice in the statute has a separate statutory definition. And that definition isn't numerically limited the way the phrase is. And Kavanaugh makes the case compellingly that the statutory definition should, as a matter of practice, trump the words in isolation. Second, there's a higher level of critique of Gorsuch in that his literal approach assumes an almost scientific level of linguistic precision by Congress, and that's just silly. Congress uses language the same way ordinary people do. If anything, their attempts to gussy up statutes with legal-sounding nonsense means they're... means they're less precise than ordinary people. So you're more likely to stay true to Congress's meaning by using the ordinary meaning rather than the literal meaning. But that's just my two cents. I I like that, GC. Gussy up statutes with legal-sounding nonsense. I really Uh, shouldn't try to (laughs) ad-lib. I get myself in trouble. Not at all. I think I'm going to steal that for a a future article. (laughs) So... (laughs) And that brings us to our interview this week, one of that legion of very talented people who practices before the Supreme Court. We are joined today by Georgia Attorney General Chris Carr, who is no doubt in a celebratory mood because the Supreme Court recently handed Georgia a unanimous win in its long-running water dispute with Florida. Attorney General Carr, welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. It's great to be on with you. So first of all, congratulations on your state's recent win uh, in the Florida water rights case. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. It was a great team effort over, uh, you know, this is an issue that's been going on for many, many years. We had a great team. It was, uh, we had the facts and the law on our side, and, and it was a lot of hard work by a lot of folks, and just uh, very, very pleased. I want to ask you all about it, but first I want to uh, – Uh, walk up the path that led you to this moment in your legal career, starting at the beginning. So what prompted you first to uh, become a lawyer at all? 
Well, it's a it's a great question because I've had a little a, kind of a non-traditional path to becoming the attorney general, but it's one I'm I'm proud of, and I think really has has helped me along the way, and helps me in the in this particular job. When I was in in undergrad, I actually I've, I've always loved policy and politics. I mean, I, that goes back my my mom always tells the story that I was actually born in Michigan, and in the '76 presidential race, which was between Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter. I was four years old. My mom tells this story, so it has to be true. There's no way it can't be. But she says, I came down the stairs the day after the election, asked who won the the race. And my mom said, Jimmy Carter. And I burst into tears because my family is a big Republican family. And we're from Michigan and Gerald Ford was from Michigan. But I've always loved politics and policy. And But I never really knew exactly what I wanted to do with it or where I might go. And and that sort of thing. So when I after I graduated from undergrad, I went to work at Georgia Pacific, a great company. But I knew that that I wanted to do something differently, and I knew that whatever it is I wanted to do had at least some sort of legal underpinning. Whether I wanted to get involved in politics, practice law, you know, whatever it may be. And so was fortunate enough to get uh, accepted into the University of Georgia School of Law, and and began that way, uh, and then had a great opportunity. Uh, uh, from there to, to go to Austin and Bird and, and, you know, as a clerk, you get to try a few different practice group areas, but everything that I knew that I wanted to do had that legal background, that legal underpinning and where it was going to end up. I didn't know, but that was, that was kind of what prompted me to, to want to go to law school and, and was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to do it. You mentioned rotating practice groups at Austin Bird. What uh, sort of law did you practice while you were there? Well, I was in the trial and appellate practice group and so got a chance to work with some great clients like the Intercontinental Group and Six Flags over Georgia. And so did a little you know, premises liability work and and uh, some franchise work when I was working with Intercontinental Group. But I, I had, had been kind of rotating around at one point in time, had an interest in intellectual property and had uh, been able to be on the Intellectual Property Journal at the University of Georgia, but ended up in the trial and appellate practice group and work with a number of different folks. And, and while I was there, I actually got to work with a partner who had gone to Yale with uh, George W. Bush and ended up being the ambassador to Australia. Later on, as I was working with Senator Isaacson in the Senate, uh, he ended up getting appointed and we got to work with him. But I worked with him a little bit as a as a younger lawyer, too. Interesting. So what made you return to your roots of uh, public policy after that? When I was younger in uh, undergrad, I got a chance to meet a guy by the name of Kevin Isaacson. And Kevin Isaacson's dad, uh, Johnny, had uh, run for the U.S. Senate and in 1996 and lost. But I had, uh, Kevin uh, and I had been friends. I called up to see if I could work on his campaign, which we did. And as I mentioned, we weren't successful in that particular race. But I had gotten to know a guy by the name of Rogers Wade. And Rogers Wade was the president of the Georgia Public Policy Foundation. And I was at all, you know, I went to law school and, and practiced for a little bit and uh, decided I might want to do something else. And uh, Rogers and I had gotten to know each other, stayed in touch. And I called Rogers up one day because I heard they had an opening at the Georgia Public Policy Foundation, which is a state-based think tank uh, that is part of the state policy network that works very closely with the Heritage Foundation. So Rogers and I had lunch, and we talked about me maybe joining him as the vice president and general counsel. And uh, it worked out, and I got to spend two years working 
at uh, GPPF, and it was a lot of fun to be able to work on state-based issues and and transition from the practice of law into how the law is actually made, particularly at the state level, and it was just a lot of fun. What were some of those issues that you worked on? Well, I got a chance to work on uh, tort reform issues. We got to do some uh, charter school law, uh, worked on that, worked on some business regulation issues. Uh, the Public Policy Foundation did a little bit of everything, but those were kind of the issues that I focused on and really enjoyed uh, working on the charter school issue because at that particular time, we had just had a recent change in the law in Georgia. So to be able to work with the State Board of, of, of Education, and Governor's Office, and the legislature on the issue of charter schools was, was a lot of fun. And after that, you had round two on Isaacson's campaign, and this time you were successful. You become chief of staff to the senator. What was, uh, tell me about that transition uh, and then being chief of staff. Well, it it was great. So, because again, I've been at the Public Policy Foundation working on state issues and and, uh, uh, the president of the foundation, who I mentioned, Rogers Wade, he'd been the chief of staff to one of Georgia's senators in the 1970s. And so he would tell me stories about being in the Senate. And uh, I thought, God, how, you know, how great it would be to be able to go to Washington and to work on the Hill. And I figured it would never happen. But then lo and behold, Johnny Isaacson, who'd lost that Senate race in 1996, actually won a special election for a House seat in 1999 after Newt Gingrich stepped down. Uh, after the 98 uh, cycle, Newt had been speaker. He stepped down. Johnny lived in that district, and he ran, and he won. I was a third year in law school, so helped out on that race a little bit. But then in 2003, Zell Miller was the senator in Georgia. He decided he wasn't going to run for re-election. Then Congressman Isaacson decided he was going to run for the Senate. So I joined him as the campaign manager in 2003, traveled the state of Georgia with with uh, with Johnny, then Congressman Isaacson. We traveled the state, got to uh, you know, Georgia is the, the largest state east of the Mississippi, has more counties than any state. Uh, but Texas, we have 159 counties. So from a grassroots perspective, organizing all those counties and getting around was absolutely fantastic. And we won that race in 2004. Johnny moved to the other side of the Capitol, and he invited me to come with him to Washington at that point as deputy uh, chief of staff. So I was deputy chief for from 04 until 07 uh, when I was appointed the chief of staff. And and I, I tell you, it was, a, again, just an incredible experience to be able to see, again, how, the, how things work on the Hill, how federal law is made. Uh, again, going back to that, what I was going to do in law school, I mean, all that, that training that I got from law school and from private practice, again, you've got to be able to take that with you going forward. I think it really makes a difference as you are crafting legislation, uh, understanding those constitutional principles and, and that sort of thing. So to be able to work with the senator was just a lot of fun. And, and again, as chief of staff, you can get involved in a little bit of everything. And I enjoyed the foreign policy aspect, as well as the Judiciary Committee and the appointment of federal judicial noms, which, uh, nominees, which, of course, the two senators at that time, it was uh, Senator Saxby Chambliss along with Senator Isaacson. Uh, it, was just, it was just a fascinating experience to be able to see how that whole process was made. And so from 07 until 13, I got to serve as, as uh, the senator's chief of staff. What was that transition like from legal work to uh, legal policy work and then chief of staff? 
it's a very easy transition from the legal perspective. I mean, again, the legal underpinnings are all the same. From my perspective, I was getting into something that I really loved, and I was really just passionate about not just, you know, again, I've served as the campaign manager, so it wasn't just political. I love the, the political side of things, but I also enjoyed the policy side of the shop. So to be able to balance those two, and, I, and, and, and you know, there's no better place in the world to do that than in the United States Senate. Uh, I'm a big fan. I've got a lot of friends on the House side. It's a whole different world on the House side than it is in the Senate. And I know they say the same thing about those uh, looking at it from the other side. But it, it was a it was a great transition because again I, the underpinnings are all the same and I do think it matters when you have a background uh, in training in the law to be able to advise you know staff because there's a lot of staff on the hill that that don't go to law school and don't need to I mean you really do mm-hmm. get I think a a graduate degree you know experience when you're do you're, as a legislative correspondent or a legislative aide but I think it's helpful to have a a legal perspective as well. And, uh, you know, I think we could provide that a little bit. But again, it, it was it was just a passion. I loved every minute of being in the Senate. It was just a great experience. And, and uh, uh, anybody who loves policy, anybody who likes politics, if you get a chance to work on the Hill, I'd encourage anybody to do it. What made you later decide to uh, leave the Senate and serve as the uh, commissioner of the Georgia Department of Economic Development? Well, it, very simple. It was a, uh, I had a daughter. So I was living back in Georgia at the time and um, commuting to Washington. So basically oh. wherever the Senator was, I, I'd commute with him. So it was Tuesday through Friday, you know, two to three weeks out of the month. And I had a little girl who was growing up and it was getting harder and harder to I get imagine. on that plane and leave. Yeah. And so had had a great run and a great experience uh, with the Senator uh, but uh, decided it was probably time to, to come home, and which was a tough decision because I'm very close to the senator, still am to this day. Uh, but uh, uh, got a great opportunity. I had gotten to know Congressman Nathan Deal uh, when he was in Congress. He was one of the senator's uh, closest colleagues in, in uh, on the Hill, and uh, he became governor of Georgia in 2010. And so we got a chance. Uh, I'd gotten to know him, his chief of staff, a guy by the name of Chris Riley. And they called up uh, my predecessor at economic development, incidentally, also happened to have worked for Senator Isaacson. He was the state director and he was going to leave to go to the private sector. And the governor, chief of staff, called me up to see if I'd be interested. And I was. And it was three years being able really to sell the state of Georgia, both from a business recruitment perspective, from a trade perspective. Uh, tourism, film, the arts, workforce, it's a little bit of everything. And it was a lot of fun uh, to be able to, uh, you know, really to to serve the state in an appointed capacity, working with the governor of the state of Georgia, who was a very pro-business governor. Well, in all three years you were in that position, Georgia was ranked the number one state for doing business. So you did something right. What What did you do? <laughs> Well, it's a combination of things, and I really think it's a, it's a number of things that we have done as a state over over many decades. And I, we've just been a pro-business state. We've been a state that doesn't see business as the enemy. Uh, and we have a history and tradition of the private sector and, and uh, uh, government, you know, government leadership working together to solve problems, to create an environment where companies can succeed and be successful. And that's what we've done. And when you look at it in the state of Georgia, we've got Hartsfield Jackson International Airport, which gets is, is two hours by plane from 80 percent 
of the U.S. market uh, by rail and 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 truck. We're and road. We're uh, you know two days by 80 percent of the U.S. market. Just the way Georgia is situated, we've got two great ports. We've got it's a state that's growing. While I was working with Governor Dia, while he was in office, we went from the 10th largest state in the nation to the eighth largest state in the nation. We've got 250,000 graduates from our universities every year. So workforce isn't an issue. And, and it's a state that people like to move in. Atlanta is a vibrant city. Uh, and the you know, movie industry and um, restaurant scene and music scene, it's just a place people like to be. Families want to live and young people want to move to. And, and it's, it was just a great time for our state to be. Uh, involved in economic development. While you were there and uh, for some time afterwards, you also simultaneously served on the Georgia Judicial Nominating Commission. What was that process like compared to your time working on federal nominations in the Senate? Uh, it was a little, a little bit different. You know, the way that it works in the Senate was the senators had each senator had three advisors, and. Um, so and and it it varied. I saw it during the Bush years. I saw it during the Obama years, uh, and then of course I was gone before President Trump came. But it was done a little bit differently. But during the Bush years, uh, when the the two senators would would put forth three names for any opening, and then the White House would would take those recommendations and and make a decision from there. It was a little bit different under the Obama years. They had started off with a. a group uh, of, of Democratic congressmen and members from the Democratic Party of Georgia and others that started off you know, kind of trying to do that recommendation. By the time it was over, the White House was just talking directly with the senators on on judicial nomination. So that was a little bit different. Down when we served on the Judicial Nominating Commission for Governor Deal, you know, anytime there was a state or superior court opening, uh, you know, folks would apply. Uh, there were 15 to 20 of us that were on the board. And then, uh, you know, and then similarly, we would make a recommendation to the governor who would interview each of our rec- the folks that we've recommended and make a decision from there. So a little bit bigger group in Georgia, a lot more activity uh, because you've got so many, uh, you know, so many uh, circuits in Georgia versus, uh, you know, the three districts that we had at the federal level. And there weren't as many openings. Uh, at the federal level as there are at the state level. But it was a great opportunity for me to be able to see how, particularly Governor Deal's vision of, of you know, judges that truly believe in, in conservative principles that had good temperament, solid intellect, uh, you know, believed in, um, you know, what what the law says is, is, is what it means. And, and really from a you know, from an originalist perspective, and and it just it was a lot of fun to be able to see that vision, and that the governor had, and to be able to participate in it because I think Georgia's got a very solid uh, court system, and and a lot of that is is I think credit deserved uh, and goes to Governor Deal at that particular time for the decisions that he made. It, it was it was just interesting and fun to be able to part be a part of that and make those recommendations to the governor. So how did it come about that uh, Governor Deal appointed you as attorney general? Well, so my, my predecessor at the attorney general's office, a man named Sam Owens, a good friend. I had known him for years, and he had uh, uh, run uh, for office for the attorney general's slot in 2010. And they offered Sam the position of president of Kennesaw State University, which is one of the largest universities uh, in uh, Georgia. And so when Sam took that position. The governor reached out and uh, offered uh, the opportunity to serve as the attorney general, which was a tremendous honor. 
And so I served for two years, uh, the, served out the remaining two years of Sam's term. And then I had to run myself in 2018. And fortunately, we were successful and won that race. But uh, to be appointed twice by Governor Deal, who, like Johnny Isaacson, is just somebody that I hold in the highest regard. And, and, and again, two, two public servants who do it for the right reasons. Uh, they're the two most successful politicians. I'm, I've, I've always said that, that don't like the politics of politics. They love the policy because they want to roll up their sleeves and get something done. And to have those two gentlemen as, as uh, mentors and friends and then to be appointed twice by Governor Deal it was just, a, just an unbelievable honor. So to be able to serve in this position, again, it's been somewhat of a non-traditional path to becoming attorney general. But again, as I've said, yeah, many of my colleagues were either prosecutors or came out of private practice, and those are important skill sets. But having been in, in Washington as a chief staff to a U.S. senator, you see more AGs getting more and more involved in federal issues. Well, these are all issues in some form or fashion that I saw firsthand when I was in Washington with Johnny. When you look at the economic development piece, how does the law impact day-to-day -day how businesses are run or operate or decisions that they make? How does it impact families moving to your state? Uh, to be able to see that firsthand, I think, has been invaluable. And it, it was also a problem-solving uh, position at economic development. You had to, you know, find that way to help a company, you know, create that next job or that next dollar of investment. You had to bring together different, you know, entities, local communities, utilities, chambers of commerce, you name it, in order to uh, solve those problems. So it's a, just a little bit of a different approach to the attorney general's position than others may have. Hmm. So what is a day a day in the life of the attorney general like? <laughs> no one day is the same. And it, but I tell you, it, it's uh, so our office is 150 lawyers and 150 professionals that are auditors and investigators and policy folks and IT and, and uh, you know, admin folks and you name it. So we're about 300 uh, person law firm in-house. We are a state of 10.4, 10.5 million people. We also hire between two and 300 what we call special assistant attorneys general who are private practitioners that assist the state when we have a geographic or a subject matter need. For example, you mentioned the water wars mm -hmm. at the beginning. We hired, we hired uh, a firm and, and named them a SAG, as we call it, special assistant attorney general SAG. Uh, so where we have needs, we do that. So we're you know, five or 600 uh, person firm all in when you look both internally and externally. So every day is different. I mean, when you're the lawyer for the executive branch of state government, so all the agencies, the boards, and the authorities uh, get their representation from us. Uh, you work with the legislature on policy issues. So if the legislature's in, we may be focused more on that. Uh, and then we also, as a courtesy, represent judges in their official capacity when they're sued. So we've got a little bit of everything that goes, goes on. So there's no normal, traditional, typical day at the Department of Law, but I'll tell you, that's okay. I kind of like it. I like having <laughs> the different uh, challenges each day. What are some of the issues your office has focused on while you've been at the at the helm? Well, we a number of different things. We, yeah, we focused on human trafficking. We have focused on uh, elder abuse. We have focused on opioid addiction, gang activity, cyber crimes, um, and, and, and again, generally just being a part of economic development, you know, again, Georgia has been known as a state that has a, a stable and predictable legal and regulatory environment. So there's a number of different issues that we focused on. And, you know, human trafficking and, and elder abuse are kind of bookend issues. One is, is dealing with children. 
who are uh, are tragically and unfortunately bought and sold for for sex every day around the country, not just in Georgia. Elder abuse, you see more and more, both financial uh, exploitation as well as outright just uh, you know physical and mental abuse, which again both ends of the of, of kind of the age spectrum and and uh, just both to me are are just appalling crimes. Uh, the opioid crisis is just again more and more around the country. Doesn't matter where you go in the state. Doesn't matter where you go in the country. It's a crisis that knows no geographic, economic, or demographic boundaries. It just impacts so many folks in the country. Unfortunately, violent crime. More than 50% of all violent crimes are committed by gang members. 80% of human trafficking uh, is gang affiliated. So going after those criminals and make sure that that you know we get the violent criminals off the street and disrupt these networks. Uh, Cybercrime, it's a good thing that we do more online, but what that does is allows criminals more opportunity to really tap into not only stealing your money, but stealing your identity. And uh, Georgia is is the focal point of the fintech industry or financial technology industry payment processing. Over 70% of all transactions online in North America now touch a Georgia company. So we've got a unique opportunity on on the private sector as well as as the public sector to to disrupt those types of crimes. And then again, economic development is, we've talked about, it's in my blood and, and it's really, again, I see the transformative nature of economic development, how communities and families are transformed through the power of, of free enterprise. And so we, we, you know, we work, these issues pop up and, and others, and, and it's just, a, it's an honor to be able to work on all of these different with federal, state and local and private sector partners. What are some of the things, your accomplishments that you're most proud of as AG? Oh, wow. Um, You know, I don't know that I can say any one particular, you know, issue necessarily here or there. I mean, you know, again, the water wars we're talking about, that's a long running issue. And, And while it, you know, there may still be other challenges is dealing with water. That was a great accomplishment to be on the team for that. I'll tell you, one of the things is standing up the first of its kind, first ever in the state of Georgia, human trafficking prosecutions unit. And thanks to the legislature and our governor, Brian Kemp, first lady, Marty Kemp, this has been an issue for them. And uh, about 18 months ago, we got the funding for the first time ever to, to hire a team that works statewide. And they're right now out there, um, investigating and and uh, because of COVID, obviously courts have been closed, but as they're opening back up, we've got grand juries that are meeting and uh, they're getting back into court. It's really something that, you know, that I'm really proud of, but it's a, it, there's a great team and you know, there, there's so much that we do in this department, so much that we have an opportunity to be a part of and, and, uh, and to impact. It's, it, it's, it's an honor and it's not one that I take lightly. So turning to, you know, the first thing you mentioned was the water wars. Tell me about the yeah. history of that litigation and your role in it. Well, it, it, this is a, the water wars kind of collectively go back into the 1980s. And, and we had a water compact with Florida and Alabama that was uh, through the Congress and that expired in the late 80s, 1990, which is funny because I was a senior in high school in 1990. So I've been hearing about the water wars, the first, you know, going to work for Congressman Isaacson in 03 and then Senator Isaacson in 04, the water wars were always front and center when you're dealing with the water manuals that the Corps of Engineers deals with. And we have Lake Lanier in Georgia. And there's actually two water basins 
the the ACF impacts Florida, flows south. The ACT flows west into Alabama. So there's different challenges that are that uh, are involved in each of those uh, water basins and the and the relationship that we have to our two neighboring states. But it's always been out there. And then right uh, before I became Attorney General, Florida filed suit against Georgia. Uh, you know, saying, you know, in essence, talk about mismanagement of water that that uh, impacted and led to the demise of the oyster industry in the Apalachicola Bay. And so that happened right before I got here. So that it, it uh, we were dealing with that issue and, and preparing for uh, again, I was appointed in November 1st of 2016. And that December, uh, our uh, litigation team was headed to Maine to uh present in front of the special master and and so I was brand new at it so it's it's an issue that's been going on ever since I uh, was, was appointed as attorney general so we had the first special master that from Maine who made his recommendation that the case be uh, dismissed uh, and uh, that went to the Supreme Court we had an oral argument there the court Supreme Court came back and said wait a minute we need a little bit more you need to tell us special master how you got to your conclusion um, and that special master stepped down and a, a second one was appointed special master out of uh, New Mexico. And so we flew out to New Mexico, held a hearing there and, and, uh, got a, you know, his, his findings, uh, shortly after that. And then of course did another, our team had an oral argument this time by zoom, uh, or earlier this year. And then to get this outcome, which to, to us was, was important, you know, obviously the, it was important to to uh, prevail in the case and, and to have it be unanimous, but really it went to causation, you know, and the, the suggestion was that Georgia's water usage had created the, the situation with the oyster industry in Florida. And basically the court, Justice Barrett wrote, well, the record actually shows it wasn't Georgia. It actually may have been some of the practices that, that Florida had been employing, but we're proud because Atlanta in particular has, has the Metro Atlanta region is really focused on conservation and doing things the right way. And, you know, we have a huge agricultural industry. It's the number one industry in the state of Georgia. And basically what the court found was our, our use of water was fair and reasonable. And I think that's very important. Now we got to continue to do that. We have an obligation to do it. We will, but uh, this is just a long running uh, issue in this region, and uh, it was an important win for the state of Georgia. Well, two final questions for you. I know your time is very valuable. Is there any other litigation we should be keeping an eye on out of Georgia? Well, m- more so, I think, uh, kind of, we, we have joined some of my Republican attorneys general colleagues in, in a number of suits that have, have come up recently as it relates to the Biden administration, the Keystone Pipeline. Permit uh, revocation is one of them. We've uh, joined a suit that involved the uh, drilling offshore and on government lands. We've not uh, filed suit, but we were involved in uh, writing a letter to the the Treasury Department uh, over the COVID bill that included a provision, 11th hour provision, saying that states, in essence, can't cut taxes or raise deductions or increase credits. Uh, I think that what you're going to see is that you're going to see a lot more on the federal issue on the federal level that that uh, relates to that issue. Obviously, we've got a lot going on in, in the state and, you know, we continue. There's a lot. Of, we've been in the news lately as it related to the election season and, and the runoffs that we had for our two United States senators. And, and uh, unfortunately, we've had a situation where 
Major League Baseball recently moved the All-Star Game as a result of us passing a uh, an Election Integrity Act, which uh, anybody who reads that bill will see it provides stronger security and expanded access and increased transparency to elections, which is something that we should all uh, uh, we should be all championing and, and praising, not not uh, creating false narratives about, but we have. But I think you're going to see more and more with particularly Republican AGs dealing with overreach in the Biden administration. Look, when you've got the presidency, the Congress and the Senate in the hands of one party, in this particular case, in the Democratic Party, you're going to have overreach. And the president himself said, I'm going to be more bipartisan. I'm going to work with Congress than yet turns around and has issued more executive orders than any president in modern history. So you got to have a pushback and the states are that pushback. And you really see us as attorneys general as the chief legal officers and chief law enforcement officers of our state best positioned to do that. So I'd, I'd say that's the area I'd keep an eye on. Well, Attorney General Carr, our final question for you. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? <laughs> I'll tell you, I've already had it. It's with my it, Clarence, Justice Clarence Thomas, who is <laughs> one of my personal heroes, a Georgia native, just a personal and legal hero of mine. And we got a chance to talk about barbecue. <laughs> Justice Thomas is a huge barbecue fan. And we had him come to a staff meeting once for Senators Isaacson and Chambliss, where he got he came and talked for 45 minutes and talked with every one of our staffers. But at the end, Senator Isaacson, it just so happened to be the day in the Senate where each senator takes a lunch and they usually bring something from their home state. So the senator had a one of his friends who does barbecue come up. He said, well, Justice Thomas, you should come over to our office and, and have the best barbecue in the world. And Justice Thomas said, no, Senator, it's not the best barbecue. And Senator Isaacson said, no, no, it really is. He's won awards. It's great. You're going to have to see it. He says, no, sir, it's not the best because I didn't make it. <laughs> we all started just dying laughing. But he, so the, I got to see him the, the next time I got a chance to see him with my chief of staff, Travis Johnson, and I got to talk to him about gr- smokers and green eggs and, and barbecue again. So I have had the chance of a lifetime to talk with Justice Clarence Thomas about good old fashioned barbecue. I think you're the only guest we've ever had who has said that he already had his conversation. <laughs> well, he's one of my heroes. And I, I just, again, being a, in fact, he's a native Georgian and uh, I just think the world of him. So I've, I've been fortunate enough to have that conversation. Well, thank you so much again for joining us. It was a pleasure to have you on. It is my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. GC, are you ready for trivia this week? I am so ready for trivia. Great. Well, you know, I like your strategic retirement topics uh, that we talked about last week. Uh, So I figured, you know what? Let's keep it going this week as well. Great idea. Oh, but Zach, before we begin, on the topic of my trivia last week, I have to mention an email we got from a listener named Josiah. He's a rising 1L at Cornell. He pointed out that my math was off last week, and he was right. You'll recall I asked you which Republican-nominated justices resigned during a Republican administration in the last 30 years, and I included Justice Brennan. Turns out Justice Brennan retired about 30 and three-fourths years ago, which is more than 30 years. So, Josiah, you were technically correct, which is the best kind of correct. Well done. GC, we've got to send Josiah some SCOTUS 101 swag or something for catching that. that that's very impressive. Actually, uh, you're right. We should do that. 
Yeah. So Josiah, if you're listening, uh, send us your contact information and we'll, uh, we'll send you some swag. <laughs> uh, but uh, turning back to strategic retirement trivia, GC, here's your first question for this week. Uh, this retirement was very strategic, uh, but it wasn't a political resignation. This Supreme Court justice seems to have had a quid pro quo arrangement with the president where if the president would lobby Congress to grant him retire benefits uh, that he wouldn't otherwise be eligible for because of his relative youth and short tenure on the court, this justice agreed that he would retire so that the president could replace him. Who was this justice? Oh, starting out hard right out of the gate. That's right. Ah. I don't know, Zach. Well, that this was a tough one. It was Justice William Henry Moody. Uh, Justice Moody had severe rheumatism that effectively prevented him from participating in any oral arguments for his last year and a half on the bench. Because he was only 55, though, and hadn't served for 10 years, he wasn't eligible for retirement benefits at that time. But President William Howard Taft urged him to retire anyway, and the president got Congress to pass a special act giving him retirement benefits. Uh, so, of course, uh, Justice Moody retired, and William Howard Taft was able to replace him with Justice Joseph Lamar. Very interesting. Yeah. So that one was a tough one. Uh, but uh, I've got another tough one for you. So hold on. <laughs> uh, only one Supreme Court justice that we know of has resigned as a matter of principled disagreement with his colleagues. Do you know who that was? Actually, I think I do. This, I think, is Justice Benjamin Curtis. He was one of the dissenters in Dred Scott and was so upset by that case and in particular uh, with Chief Justice Taney that he left. I am duly impressed. Uh, that's exactly right. And, yes. you know, it seems like if there was ever a case to be uh, principally upset about, uh, Dred Scott's the case. Um, all right. Next up, this justice suffered a debilitating stroke that made him all but incapable of fulfilling his duties. Still, he refused to retire and only did so after his colleagues essentially forced him to by postponing any cases in which his vote might be decisive. So who was this justice? Oh, this is a sad and ignominious story. This is Justice William O. Douglas. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I'll tell you, reading about this this past week, uh, it reads like something almost out of a, a daytime soap opera. Uh, <laughs> because even after retirement, uh, Justice Douglas maintained that he could still serve on the court in senior status. And he was outraged when upon arriving at the court one day, he found that his replacement <laughs> was occupying his former chambers. Uh, he also tried to participate in several cases, and finally, Chief Justice Warren Berger had to order all of the justices, clerks, and staff not to help him uh, do so. Justice Douglas also uh, even showed up one day to hear oral arguments in the case of Greg v. Georgia, but at that point, all nine justices had signed a letter informing him that all of his duties ended with his retirement. It was only then that he stopped trying to work on the court. Oof, that's awkward and sad. Yeah, it, it really is. It really is. 
Our final question for today involves a political retirement gone wrong. Uh, This justice was, after the fact, very open about the political nature of his retirement, but he was also open about the fact that it went wrong. Due to an unpredictable series of events, he announced his resignation, but was not replaced before president of the opposing party was elected. He considered withdrawing his resignation, but he thought that might just be a bridge too far. He would, though, later regret his decision to attempt to strategically retire. So who was this justice, GC? Ah, let me think. My sense is that this was sometime around the Warren Court era because they were, in the words of one author, like a bunch of scorpions in a bottle together. Ah. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I couldn't be more specific. Well, your instincts were spot on. And in fact, it was Chief Justice Earl Warren. And, you know, <laughs> talk about soap operas. This also could be a, another soap opera <laughs> series going on because uh, Chief Justice Earl Warren attempted to retire upon learning about Warren's desire to retire LBJ initially nominated his personal friend and advisor, uh, who was at that time Associate Justice Abe Fortas, uh, to succeed Earl Warren as the Chief Justice. But Fortas became embroiled in a corruption scandal, and his nomination failed in the Senate after a bipartisan filibuster was mounted against him. These same ethics problems ultimately led to Fortas's resignation from the court entirely. And after Fortas's nomination failed, Richard Nixon won the election and eventually nominated Warren Burger to succeed Earl Warren. Uh, of course, as I mentioned earlier, later in life, Warren lamented his decision not to rescind his nomination, saying that he wished they, quote, carried me out on a plank. I mean, that's a that's a statement. All right. That's all we have for trivia this week, GC. Well done. Thank you very much. And that's all we have for our show today. Thank you to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we would appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS 101 and email us at SCOTUS 101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.